Hello, thank you for joining us again on SW720. Today we're going to be talking about predominant aggressor laws, and I'm Audra, she, they. I'm Taylor, she, her. Uh, I'm Catherine, uh, her series pronouns. All right, Taylor, can you get us started on that? For sure. Uh, so why we wanted to come and sit and talk about predominant aggressor laws, um, so arrest laws, I should say. Uh, predominant aggressor arrest law was brought up to the Senate uh, this year uh, in the state of Kansas. And it seems to have be pretty short-lived. We haven't really seen any updates about that bill since February. Um, and so why it's really important is because um, this could really change the landscape of how we as a society um, react to and respond to domestic violence in the state. Um, and so it's really it could be really impactful, but because, um, again, the bill is at a standstill at this point, um, it was important to talk about um, where that's at, why it's happening, um, and why it's important. I'm so glad that you brought this to our attention. Um, do you know about any federal protection for domestic abuse survivors? Yes. Uh, so this is just me making assumptions. Uh, I would think that a lot of uh, arrest laws that are in direct response to domestic violence come from uh, the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, and so that wasn't necessarily introduced or passed uh, until the 90s. Uh, and then prior to that, um, a, a lot of other different arrest laws and mandatory arrest laws were around um, and perhaps the um, inspiration for arrest laws specifically re related to domestic violence um, didn't probably have really structured guidance until the Violence Against Women Act. Um, so in the 90s, uh, VAWA had a lot of different protections. Uh, so it was the reason that if someone uh, was experiencing domestic violence, but they were not documented yet as a US citizen, uh, that they could not be deported because of them re reporting that they had experienced domestic violence. Uh, if, they, if there was a person uh, specifically living on any sort of indigenous or native land, uh, or um, reservation, again, there would not be uh, any sort of consequence and or it would still be a priority for uh, the for law enforcement and or for other responding parties to uh, assist those folks. It's also the reason people don't have to pay for a rape kit when they have if they have to if they have to and or want to go through with a procedure like that, um, that law essentially protects them from having to come out of pocket uh, for for any sort of response to that. Um, 
you can't, that's why you can't necessarily put anybody on a lie detector test uh, during uh, any sort of trial in regards to rape. So it really did protect a lot of different things. But with that, uh, specifically when talking about um, training for law enforcement and how arrests should be uh, conducted in response to law enforcement, this is kind of where it was um, encouraged to build off of uh what they then started calling probable cause. So essentially, I show up and I should be able to use my discretion, which is how Kansas uh, addresses it. Um, I should be able to use my common sense or discretion to say what is happening here and based on what I think is happening here, then I shall make an arrest. Um, However, what we saw with probable cause was, oh, I can't necessarily tell what's happening in this situation. And because I can't tell, both of you are going to jail. Um, And with that, uh, right, I I would say a lot of different states, um, there was a a report that showed a lot of different states showing an increase in dual arrests uh, or arrests in general um, coming from that space of dual arrests where multiple people were getting arrested for uh, domestic violence, um, which is an issue. Can you like delve deeper into what a dual arrest is and maybe why it's so problematic? For sure. Uh, So a dual arrest, um, I want to make sure I'm finding the right words. So a dual arrest it's it's essentially in the name that multiple and or both parties that are present um if there has been physical is if there has been physical violence a responding officer shall make an arrest so in some of these cases uh again where if so specifically in Kansas, they still abide by a mandatory arrest law. Mandatory arrest addresses uh, any physical violence being present, an arrest shall be made. Um, And so that gets pretty complicated when we start to then look at how physical violence is actually used in specific romantic or familial relationships or even just relationships between roommates how is it that physical violence is being used Um, and then specifically in those long-term or more intimate relationships what are some other power dynamics that are at play so when we have something like a dual arrest it introduces this uh, thought or really a myth that um, a myth that uh, there really is a such thing as a mutually abusive relationship um that it's possible that two people can be in a relationship and can be using violence for the exact same reasons um and that is not always necessarily true um do you have any thoughts on that Catherine? not at the um, moment well no because i think i would want to ask y'all like kind of ha- what have your thoughts been around that i think that's what i want to know like has that been a concept that has felt familiar to y'all like i don't know i don't know about y'all but like me growing up and the ways that i would either think about domestic violence or how it would be talked about um i would hear kind of older generations kind of speak of speak of this concept of like kind of like it takes two to tango or like you know right right yeah they right so it's like if you want to 
almost if like right and this some of it was even very gender specific if you want to step to a man you need to be prepared to like get hit like a man like all of those Mm -hmm. things then introduce this problematic thinking of of the ways in which power dynamics actually are at play with violence so i just was wondering if that has shown up yeah that's that's deeply problematic with all the victim blaming um and i'm sure that's really difficult to endure as a survivor um especially like trying to process and then get arrested i i can see where that would be deeply problematic and need to be addressed in policy for sure um and I think a lot of the time uh, people are like, oh, there's an obvious aggressor in the mm-hmm. situation. Obviously, it's this person doing it. That's the victim. That's the abuser. And a lot of times it's not the case. It's, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's heated or there's, you know, oh, they both have scratches on them. OK, well, then who who did what? When did what happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and that discretion can be a good thing, but also mm, how do I make that decision? Should I make that decision? Am I making the right decision? A lot of those questions can come up as well. Yeah. Right. Survival instincts don't always look like victim reactions that people expect to see in those scenarios. So um, I was kind of hoping that we could circle back to what you were talking about with the gender um, relationship with power dynamics. Um, You discussed how that can like influence people's decisions around like their discernment about who's the victim, who is the the culprit, the agitator. I would like you to delve into that for me. For sure. I think uh, I feel like we know for a lot of reasons um, there it, 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 it would be unfair to think that responders are going into situations or responding to calls with a specific lens um we are not necessarily in a space yet where there has been a great deal of turnover and so that a lot of different responders and or law enforcement um have us have 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 a changed maybe view of how um how gender um, is present in relationships, how um, sexual orientation is present in different relationships, all of those different things. And so when we're not considering different identities, when we're not considering um, um, bigger themes of oppression or bigger themes of erasure, uh, that then gets hard when we're talking about responding to something very uh, serious uh, and complex like violence and so if I am already someone who is responding to a call and I've always been conditioned to think that men are stronger men um you know always have the upper hand uh any man that allows himself to to get you know bested by a woman is xyz we've heard all of the harmful terms around that um again it's already shaping how we're showing up in a specific situation um and or um if we've only been um if we only have a very narrow way of looking at how people display emotions that may also be curbing uh again our discretion and how we're showing up to some of those calls so i love what catherine was saying because right if i'm showing up and um it's the 
femme person or like woman who's screaming all over the place and is yelling at me and trying to figure out why I'm not doing my job. Um, and like the, there's like a guy sitting over there and he seems calm and he's asked me how my day's going and he's like, you know, even maybe offering me water and saying, you know, I don't know what happened. That's probably changing how I'm going about this situation. But could it be that there's actually manipulative manipulative tactics at play right now? And because, again, I have such a very narrow view of how gender shows up in relationships, what scripts I'm assigning to those genders, how I'm expecting them to act, how to feel, if anything challenges that, why is it right my first reaction then to um, uh, enforce my job specifically in that way? I hope that's helping with that part. Yeah, and I actually had a thought as you were talking about, like, do you think um, that, like, situation of not having the knowledge on, like, how gender or, like, sexual orientation or some of those aspects are present in that situation, do you think that might be seen more in, like, rural areas where, like, in cities you think they're more, like, woke on those things or, like, Mm -hmm. up to date or, like, they have more knowledge and training on that already? Do you think that, like, location would make a difference, I guess? (laughs) I can see how it would. Um, I'm trying to remember if any of the research that I looked at, looked at specifically broke it out by um, uh, by area or population, but like I could see that. Like when when we think of kind of what themes uh, are attached, what policies are attached to certain <laughs> some of those areas. Um, Surely, yes, I could see how um, that might be affecting the arrest rate as well. Um, But I think generally, even some of the numbers that stuck out uh, from research behind this policy. um, uh, Yeah, one study of the dual arrests, it was that 26.1% of female same-sex domestic violent cases and 27.3% of male same-sex cases resulted in dual arrests. So I think that's kind of speaking to this space of, right, like we don't know about that. And so we're not even going to try to know and we don't want to... um, be more open be more educated we don't want to gain more knowledge on that we already got enough about this other stuff so why would we want to look at that yeah (laughs) um right it's almost yeah it is kind of from that space of like yeah you being gay is already enough so what do you mean I also have to like care about your interpersonal um uh ill like the word drama came up but I would think that like that's how that's coming up though right and so interpersonal affairs right Uh, yeah yeah Yeah. so it's like why and so I could absolutely see kind of right without that training without those other conversations without like buy-in into why that's important um to keep in to be keeping in mind how then dual arrests uh happen for that population and so how then again still detrimental that is um a lot of the studies still very much speak to how traumatic it just is in general for a victim survivor to be arrested um it already takes so much to put trust in any sort of um 
agency or any sort of response. So then to put trust in a specific uh, agency like law enforcement only to get arrested um, is already traumatic in itself. But then what that also means uh, for folks belonging to like multiple marginalized populations that have intersecting um, oppressed identities, that's just a, a lot. It's a lot for sure. For sure. All right. I have another follow-up question. So how do predominant aggressor laws better address domestic violence than the like average discretionary dual arrest mm-hmm. situation? So from what we've seen in the recommendations, so I think what we were talking about earlier, I think it's uh, it's around 27 states that have already adopted predominant aggressor laws. What also comes with that law is, <laughs> I know we were joking about this, like, who's more educated than than law enforcement agencies but it does kind of require this additional education that speaks to some of those spaces that we were just talking about that speaks to um unique power dynamics that are present in relationships um so right what does that mean to come away from a space of thinking about relationships as mutually abusive that right it takes two to tango or um they just like to fight uh i've had to respond to this house three other times already this is just part of their routine all of that sort of stuff what does it mean to move away from that space and then really take a look at the ways um the reasons and the ways that people are using violence. So um, for some time now, it's been introduced, uh, this this idea of like um, uh, violence for like survival. So essentially this idea that on a surface level, what what the eye can see within the first couple of seconds is that yes, it, it seems that um, two or multiple parties are creating harm. But when we start to look at the behavior, start to look at patterns, one is you one party is usually using that violence specifically for power and control to gain control over that other person, um, to change them, to get them to um, get to do what they want, to speak how that person wants them to, however it is that they will get power and control over that person. Whereas the other person is adapting to that relationship and then is in turn perhaps um, adopting violence as a way to survive that relationship. This is how I know best to adapt and this is how I know best to keep myself safe uh, in these rela- in, in this relationship. Um, and even in uh, future relationships, I think we've seen that, we've seen those statistics too that folks will leave a um a violent relationship and as a victim survivor and still will feel the need to create harm or present violence in the next relationship to now still feel that power and control that they had once lost before almost kind of like i never am going to let someone else get over me sort of situation um and so essentially what these predominant aggressor laws will it will challenge first responders and challenge officers to uh dig deeper than there's just too much going on or um if if y'all are the same gender then it must be the same like level of violence because that's how that works um what does that mean to actually um uh 
go beneath the surface and figure out where the motive is coming from. Um, and if we can find motive, if we can find influence and find inspiration, we might be able to then find uh, the person who actually is using violence for power and control and actually hold that person accountable um, uh, rather than traumatizing somebody. Yeah. I totally think that's valid. But do you think that first responders or police officers who are responding will need the support of training to make this policy effective? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, before you answer that, I was actually going to, I was thinking something like that when she was talking. Yeah. I was going to tack on a question of, it's not also just like, would more training be necessary, but like how much would that cost? What would that mm-hmm. maybe look like? How much extra time would that take? Mm-hmm. What, who would pay for that? Those kind of questions of like, let me a little bit of the devil's advocate, like mm-hmm. why should we not do that? <laughs> Uh, and I think coming from that space of like nonprofit, I think the answer is like people have already been doing this shit and they've been doing it for free <laughs> for a really long time. <laughs> so it's actually already there and it's probably not going to cost a lot more. Uh, so um, I think that but I think that's what's lovely. I think that it, I think what can come with those laws is or what has has come out of those laws is that challenge to get that training to actually connect those agencies with organizations that are perhaps already in the community doing the work, um, who are already funded by grants uh, to have prevention educators, to have um, uh, different uh, outreach educators. There are there are folks who are already on the ground, already doing the work, uh, and are already kind of funded by the grants uh, that are there that does bring me to this space where some of them are cutting funding uh, for some of those positions. So I think that's what comes with that is that advocacy uh, to a uphold, uh, uphold that funding that is going towards those agencies so that not much is having to come out of the budgets from uh, law enforcement to have to spend on that training. Um, Now, if you say it's already, the training's already there, Mm -hmm. why aren't we doing that? Mm -hmm. Why, why did this not pass? You got me. What do y'all think? I think I'd like to kind of know. Or, or even like, how can we uh, improve it in the future to make it pass? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I kind of assume that it's not a very attractive occupation being a police officer Mm -hmm. and the people who have the type of background that being a police officer would be appealing to them aren't very interested in this sort of training and thus they get promoted and they're the people in charge and they're likely the ones that are saying hey maybe we don't need necessarily need to do training on situations like this but I was wondering if in the initial response to calls like this if predominant aggressor laws would allow for social workers to be on the job site as well to like help police officers discern this Mm -hmm. i think it definitely creates that opportunity for that to happen um i believe i believe that there are agencies that have that practice already that have a certain that have a certain liaison that reports to specific calls that goes on specific calls with them um and so that does 
seem to work. I think that would actually be cool if we came back on a different episode and looked at the numbers for that. Like, what does that look like when um, funding is put into liaison positions that are connected to uh, victim services, but also work with law enforcement? Um, Say your question again. I want to make sure I was getting all of it. Um, So I was talking about how, like, maybe predominant aggressor laws would need to have supports like training but also um if that wasn't an option mm-hmm. for whatever reason would having a social work liaison be like plausible for this mm-hmm. kind of scenario yeah okay yeah and so i think i was just used this, taking up a lot of time to just say yes that i think is possible <laughs> um so I think that can be a thing. I think for for some of these states, the requirement has also been for uh, the DA to go through the same training, for judges to go through the same training, because it does take teamwork. It does take a system. So why, right, why would I, as a law enforcement officer, care about going through this training and care about applying um, this space, this piece, uh, so that I can do my job effectively and, and make this arrest if by the time because we already know a fraction of these actually like go to trial or, or, you know, have something come out of them. When they get there, though, if I don't even have a system that that understands where that decision came from, that can also see these same themes, that can also see these same dynamics, then right, what was the point of me doing that? So I think that, again, that perhaps that buy-in comes when I know I'm going to A, have additional support, and B, be part of a system that's on the same page and is very cohesive in the same language and the same themes. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I see. Okay. I have a follow-up question, and this is kind of tying into, like, the the same-sex dual arrests. Um, Do you think that officers sometimes are doing dual arrests to protect themselves from the liability of their like discernment being questioned in in trial like is there a fear that it will feel discriminatory if i took one person instead of both people is mm-hmm. that how i'm hearing like that? if if they chose the wrong person based mm-hmm. on their bias right. because we all have bias right. um and their background and their perception of it um if that was wrong like it'd just be better to arrest both people to cover their bases Mm -hmm. no I think that's exactly it I think I I would think that a good if I could make assumptions I would think a good chunk of folks who who do participate in dual arrests usually are coming from that space of of like a cover my ass sort of situation of like I I don't I don't want to be held liable, right, if I got the wrong person. But also I think they're also being informed by by the mandatory the mandatory arrest law that says if physical violence was present, you shall arrest. So that just is my job. So if I know you're telling me that you scratched this person because you were trying to get away from them, but this right here is telling me I have to still take you. Um, so right, I think it's right. kind of a mixture of those. Like, A, if I don't have that information, I'm maybe trying to um, uh, 
you know, make up for the situation by getting everyone so that everyone's safe and separated. Sometimes I'll hear that from law enforcement, like we just wanted to get them separated and knowing that they'll be arrested and they'll have, you know, a night's a night away from each other because they're in their own cell and like they have like their own rationale for at least maybe even making that separation for safety. Um, it also could very much be this is what my job says. This is what my this was what's in my job description. And so I, that's what I'm going to abide by which is tricky okay so aside from the mandatory arrest law it could be like the potentials potential reasons why they're not just discerning who who is the aggressor um is lack of like education Mm -hmm. on different like power dynamics and uh possible supports in um like social work liaisons Mm mm-hmm Do you think there are any other missing, like, supports for the predominant aggressor laws? I hope this is going to make sense when I say it, and I want y'all to speak more on it. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) I know we keep saying training, but it's like, it, how do I want to say this? Like, right, but it would have to be a cultural overhaul or cultural shift in those same principles, because then wow, how fucked is that going to be if we introduce a law like this and then because of that same framework or because of that same bias that I have, now it's just switching into who do I think, who in my mind do I think will always be a primary, like a predominant aggressor, like who feels aggressive in my brain and who have I always conditioned to think is aggressive in my brain. And because of what's informing me that way, and is there going to be higher arrests um, um, of um, black gay men, black trans women, black women? Um, what does that mean to right shift something that is supposed to create more safety, but do it in a way that is still very detrimental to other folks? Um, so, and I think we always run the risk of that with anything, but I think that w- that is what would be missing too of, hey, this is how we do it, but also th- you really need to check this, check this space or check this bias or um, check this mentality through each step of the way, um, if that makes sense. Right. It, it can't just be the social work liaison yeah. abiding by their code of ethics to like babysit or like the the biases that all the responders hold Mm -hmm. i i totally agree with you i don't know how plausible that is but i do think it's a start to to better policy for domestic violence and i kind of had a follow-up question regarding what you were saying like with the cultural shift because i know cultural shifts take quite a while to (laughs) to change Mm -hmm. um but like if we introduce this policy i kind of have two two directions to go mm-hmm. one how long or like what do you more would that cultural shift look like mm-hmm. but then also like would this policy if you ch- if we introduce the predominant aggressor laws was there any current policy that would like go against that or like like you have that framework and then you have the framework about this other policy that's like the opposite mm-hmm. and it's like what do I go with which one do I support do I go with what's already there do I change do I what do I do Mm -hmm. yeah I and I feel like right we were talking about this a little bit earlier where um 
right what other maybe federal policy would need to change or be rearranged in order for something like Mm -hmm. this to work out and so uh when we speak of inclusivity and when we speak of uh the prevalence of domestic violence among uh different races sexual orientation uh religion class uh there is still that factor of gender identity and so when you have when you're gaining a lot of influence from a law or like or yeah from a law called the violence against women act again it's probably framing a very um a, a very specific and or narrow um glance at what violence can look like or who it's happening to uh so again if i'm pulling from something like that uh which is what just got reauthorized and so what does that mean the next time the next go around is that is that a name change is that just a again a different overhaul of um taking influence from a law like that but creating something different that feels more inclusive for different identities perhaps that is what that could be and then could allow other folks to then respond to situations and 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 have um a different frame of reference yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i like that Hmm. what do you all think is missing if this were like put on your desk today and you were like a policy maker knowing the little experience i have with this and knowing the little bit just from like today i surprised or I'm, I'm kind of like want to know why it didn't go through <laughs> I, I want i want more information about f- from the government's end about why yeah. why have we not done this or why have we not done it before mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. i agree i also think that there should be some sort of training on this i i i really hate to say but i doubt that there is um on the police officers end and I also think that it should just be I think that this should be like a federal law and because like you said like 27 states have already like signed this in mm-hmm. I've like made this a law yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I really believe that like there's a need here and it's just conservative traditional values and like fear of the unknown that's holding us back Mm -hmm. from protecting these people Mm -hmm. i love one thing i love and hate uh, about midwest niceness is how it then transfers over into policy and transfers over into what that means to be open to change be open to new perspectives um because we feel so good at heart and we're so good intentioned there's no way we could be fucking things up. Um, That's not exactly how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, what does that mean to lean into that space to say, oh, okay, perhaps we have not been doing this as effective as we could. And what does that mean to have the buy-in or the desire to want to do it better? Like that could actually be very powerful, but it's so scary to be critical of the things that we love. Um, But if we don't, like who else will be? Um, uh, and then w- will things actually change? So, I agree. Um, are there any more final thoughts? All right. It was great from hearing from you, Taylor, and your expertise in this field. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening. <laughs>